Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us alongside Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon. I'm Kevin Ingram. Coming up on today's show, we're going to have Matt Norlander with us. He is a senior writer, analyst, and podcaster for CBS Sports. So looking forward to visiting with Matt a little bit later in the show. Why is this man smiling? Well, it's because Chris has completed putting together the 42nd edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook, the 25th edition that was edited by Chris. Congratulations, and uh, I know it's uh, there's still work work to be done, but uh, you've taken a big step in, in, in getting the uh, latest edition of the yearbook out there. Yeah, definitely work to be done, but it does feel like I've gone 40 days and 40 nights in the desert uh, with, <laughs> with uh, limited hydration, and uh, now I've crawled my way out and uh, this is the fun part is when the book comes out and, and fans are fired up and pumped. Um, we talked about this off the air, but the PDF slash uh, tablet version is uh, out. It dropped uh, on Saturday, which was an all-time early date for us. We pushed our deadline back a couple of weeks. Our print book won't come out till next month. It takes a little longer to print that thing. Right. We have a new printer, and they do a really good job. Uh, I'd rather they they did it well than did it fast. Yeah. So uh, I'm okay with that. I, I hope the fans are. Uh, but it's definitely worth it. This is one of our better books. Uh, very well written. Um, the, the degree of thoroughness is incredible, even down to, I don't know, the teams that are in the lower echelons of Ken Palm, uh, uh, we have great stories and talk to every coach and I'm just so proud of it and so happy with all the staff and you, you always, uh, do a couple of key things for me that, that, uh, uh, you, you downplay it, but it, what you do helps a ton. And, uh, I'm just really proud of it. it it's, uh, uh, you know, it takes about three months to, to get the thing done and, yeah. I like to write a good bit of it myself. I think I wrote 27 stories this year. And, you know, to to do that, talk to all the coaches, and then edit everybody else's story, and then proofread the, the pages as they come from the designer, and then proofread it again as the book is put together, then proofread it again after it gets to the printer. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a load, but yeah. uh, definitely uh, a labor of love. The cover features uh, the five All-Americans, first-team All-Americans from Blue Ribbon, Armando Baycott uh, from North Carolina, Trace Jackson Davis of Indiana, Marcus Sasser from Houston, Drew Timmy from Gonzaga, and Oscar Shibway from Kentucky. So uh, those are on the uh, cover, and you open it up, and uh, the, all the All-American teams, the uh, preseason top 25 all in there. I want to go over the, uh, the preseason top 10 real quick. North Carolina, Gonzaga, Kentucky, Houston, and Duke. And then the next five are Arkansas, Kansas, UCLA, Baylor, and Tennessee at number 10. What's the challenge in coming up with those All-America teams in the preseason rankings and just trying to assemble all those things and get input from a lot of different people who write for you? You know, I think that's the biggest challenge is to get a consensus of the people that either write for us or friends uh, in the business. I always... Um, always always make sure that i get input from somebody like paul biancardi friend of the show um known him a long time of course he's espn's director of scouting and recruiting and i really 
I really wanted to get his input on my choice for the newcomer of the year. It's Nick Smith Jr. of Arkansas. And I said, what do you think about this? And he said, well, if you look at talent versus usage rate, which it's going to be high, then he's got a chance to put up the numbers that it would take to win that award. And so that was good enough for me. Uh, Player of the year was easy until somebody convinces me that they're going to put up better numbers than Oscar Shibway. He's my guy. Yeah. Uh, If you look at what he did last year, I think people thought he could be a double, double guy in Kentucky, but I don't think anybody thought he was going to go on average 17 and 15. And you saw him a couple of times live and didn't he have a 30 board game and several 20 board games. I mean, that's no accident. Uh, that means you've got a hunger, uh, for the ball and, and you've got the knowledge to know, uh, how to box out where rebounds might be coming from. Uh, it's not just physicality, it's studying it too. And so he was an easy pick. I thought as far as the rest of the all Americans, again, I, I look at, uh, everything I can get my hands on, including NBA mock drafts for, you know, uh, 2020. Three. I talked to NBA uh, scouts. I talked to uh, you know several coaches, and then all our, our writers weigh in as well. And you know, there's always going to be somebody that you leave out. You wish you would included. Yeah. Our fans make sure we know that. <laughs> uh, but we do the best we can. I mean, for example, uh, there's a guy named Jordan uh, Jelly Walker from UAB. Uh, he's one of the best point guards in the country that probably people don't know about, but I put him on our fourth team, all American list. And I think he's good enough to justify that. I think he'll have the numbers. He'll have the usage again. Usage is, is another one of those new age metrics that I look at a lot, uh, usage and percentage of shots taken. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a great player. If you take all the shots, but it does show that people are trying to, uh, you know, a coach is trying to utilize you yeah. and that they depend on you. So those are usually, I don't know, th- those are, are deal makers for me when I see a high usage rate and uh, a high degree of efficiency too. Interesting to me in the top 25, Indiana 12th, Alabama 13th, Auburn 15th, TCU 17th, Texas A&M 21st. So maybe keep an eye on those teams. Look through some of the conference standings and projections there I got to think this year may be as challenging as any other or more challenging than any other with so much player movement and, and just so much uncertainty about what the rosters are going to look like. You try to figure out how this, these teams are all going to fit together and who's going to do what in these leagues. Yeah, it, it, it's – I don't know if it was harder uh, than last year because last year the one-time transfer rule – Yeah allowed players to move until July 1st this year. Thank God the NCAA cut it off May 1. That didn't stop people from moving around, though. Uh, one crazy story that comes to mind, I was editing uh, uh, the Memphis story. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I sent it to the, to the printer and, and, I mean, to my designer, and she put it on a page. And then all of a sudden, I, I saw where, uh, Western Kentucky, uh, the player in question, he was at Memphis, a transfer from Boise State. His name is Emmanuel Acott. So 
I just got done reading these quotes from Penny Hardaway about how he was going to fit in. And, you know, he's a point forward and a blender and all this stuff. And then I look on a website and see he's left for Western Kentucky, your alma mater. Yeah. So I had to go back in. Uh, I had to edit the, the Memphis story, uh, pull it back from the designer. And then I had to go in and, and I, I know Rick stands very well. And I always leave room for for any late breaking player movement for him. But this was nuts because, I mean, he was on the roster at at Memphis, but he never matriculated, which means he never attended class. So he was was free to take off. So uh, I can only surmise that that (laughs) he got a good NIL deal. Yeah, well, those things happen. (laughs) Uh, It's funny. I I almost wrote this about a coach who is no longer working uh, in a school preview, but uh, I almost said something like, it turns out Coach Blank was just a man ahead of his time. <laughs> now it's all legal. Yeah, I know. know? That, that's funny. It's like but, stuff, uh, the stuff that's been illegal and been investigated for years is now fair game. That, that's what's uh, kind of crazy about this oh, time yeah. period. Yeah, you can do it. And, and it, so, yeah, your point is well taken. It, it's The conference shifting was tough, too. I mean, for years, I prided myself on knowing what league every school was in. And this year, uh, I forgot, you know, there were so many people jumping around. Oh, gosh, yeah, UT Arlington's in the whack now. And, you know, stuff like Uh that. Uh, School's moving around. And and, uh, obviously, that's just a small example. But, I mean, it's going to get worse next year when the Big 12 adds all those schools uh, from Conference USA and uh, the American Athletic. And and it's not going to stop yet. I just read where the the Big 12 is – wants to expand west and you know you you immediately think well utah and colorado are out there one of the criterias was that they wanted schools that were successful in football and basketball and certainly colorado comes to mind quickly and utah 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 as well for that matter they've been really good in both yeah yeah and and they're good you know they're good markets so I, I don't know where this all ends, and I'm glad we've got Matt on the show because I wanted to ask him in particular, I like what what, uh, what he and Gary do. They, they interview 100 coaches every year. They're uh, head coaches or assistants. They're guaranteed anonymity, and they ask some hard-hitting questions, and one of them was uh, about the NCAA tournament. So I'll let Matt explain more about that, but uh, – I was very interested to see what they came up with. And I hope that influences some of the powers that be who are thinking about or, or speculating about tinkering with the NCAA tournament. So, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's tough to keep track of, of not only where schools are and what league they've resurfaced in the Sun Belt is a huge example. Mm-hmm. Like they took three conference USA schools and it just, I could not get that in my head until like midway through the process. Marshall is in the Sun Belt now. Old Dominion is in the Sun Belt now. And, you know, what's really crazy, um, we saw this last Saturday uh, yep. when, when the Sun Belt uh, wreaked havoc with, uh, with uh, you know, the power conference football teams. And I just – I was 
surprised but not stunned because all three of those schools used to be in the Southern Conference, which I grew up covering, and they all have great football traditions and chips on their shoulder. So uh, they're all in the Sun Belt now, and they're also there in basketball too. So uh, it's going to take some getting used to for sure. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. You know, and, and if you told me a few years ago that the Sun Belt would be where it is, I mean, it looked like it might be a, a league that uh, – you know, it might be a dying conference, and now it's as healthy Truly. as ever. You had those three big wins on Saturday in football. What is uh, Marshall and yeah. App- Appalachian State and then Georgia Southern? Marshall and- beats Notre Dame. Yep. And, yeah, App uh, beats what, Texas A&M? Uh-huh. And then uh, Georgia Southern and went out and won at Nebraska. Georgia- got Nebraska's coach fired. Yeah. <laughs> So, and a $15 million buyout. Yeah, that was some interesting timing on that. If you, you wait a couple of weeks, it might have been a little cheaper, but they went ahead and made the move. Uh, a couple of things uh, the NCAA has done. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this. Uh, back last month, they adopted plans to speed up rulings in cases of, of schools committing infractions. They eliminated the IARP, and it'll go away after the, the five remaining cases are done. Uh, those five cases are Memphis, LSU, Louisville, Kansas, and Arizona. And this goes back to that big investigation and all that stuff that came out a few oh, yeah. years ago. Uh, and only the most serious cases now go to the infractions committee. Also, the board okayed a window of 60 days for basketball players to let schools know they want to transfer and not lose a year of eligibility. Uh, some exceptions in place for coaching changes and a few other situations, but that will start the day after a selection Sunday. So uh, the NCAA making an announcement of a couple of things that will change there as far as uh, investigating infractions and the uh, transfer window. So uh, those will, will go into play soon. Yeah, I, I you know I, I think it's it's it, it boggles the mind that some of these uh, infractions that were uncovered in that wiretap in 2017 still haven't you know justice uh, has not yet prevailed and s- some schools have made moves obviously LSU fired Will Wade uh, so I mean I, I I don't think that that it's fair for you know players coaches fans even to be held in limbo. Uh, I, I think anything that can be done to, to step up uh, the timelines of this, I'm all for. And as far as I'm really glad that the NCAA didn't declare open season on transfers. I, I think there, for a while there, uh, it was it was being talked about where you could just have unlimited transfers. And it's already pretty much that. I mean, I can't tell you how many in editing Blue Ribbon uh, of how many players I came across that are at their third, fourth, or even fifth That's school. It's just crazy. Some in as many years. So uh, it's crazy. I, I think there has to be some control of that, or we're going to see like that story I told you about, uh, Emmanuel Acott leaving Memphis and going uh, to Western Kentucky. I mean, literally – as school starts, I mean, there, there just has to be some checks and balances. It can't be, I don't think. I mean, you want player movement and freedom, just like coaches have it, but I don't think it can be chaotic, and I don't think it can be like, like free agency. Even even in the pros, there, there's limits to, you know, when free agents can move yeah. and there's trade deadlines. There, there's got to be some checks and balances. Yeah, the thing I always wonder is, is, is – okay, you, you go to two or three or four schools, how do your credits transfer? And, you know, what kind of creative accounting goes on to, to make sure guys are eligible and able to play? And 
Uh, did, does anybody ever get a degree out of this in the end, or you just move around and and, uh, and play whatever sport it might be? I, I just think those things are, are interesting. Uh, one other thing, uh, Chris Rastatter is now the new NCAA National Coordinator of Men's Officiating. Uh, one of his things is wants to really ramp up training. Uh, he replaces J.D. Collins, who retired from that role. Also wants to help develop the next group of college basketball officials. And I think that's really important because you, you see at youth level leagues and, and you know in all different sports, the people just don't want to be officials anymore. I think a lot of people think, well, why would I want to fool with that? But uh, we'll, we'll see Chris Rastatter take on that role of the uh, new NCAA National Coordinator of Men's Officiating. I think that's a noteworthy goal because, as you said, I, I saw this crazy uh, video on Twitter. It was in a high school football game. Uh, an elderly, I'll call him gentleman, looked like he was in his 70s, walked out to the field and attacked, tried to attack a ref. So, yeah, it's it's a thankless job that's gotten even more thankless. And, and uh, it has to be, uh, uh, you know, you have to encourage people, young referees, to get into the business. Our guest this week is a guy who's a senior writer, analyst, and podcaster for CBS Sports. He knows his stuff when it comes to college basketball and also knows a ton about music. We're going to get into that shortly, too. He is Matt Norlander. Matt, what's going on? Hey, guys. It's great to be with you. And uh, listen, we are September is the is the last month of the offseason where college basketball is like really, really slow. Um, so uh, I, I appreciate that. But it's really around like week two or three of the NFL season every year where I love my Chicago bears and I get into that and all that stuff, but I really start to itch for the season to return. I've all, I've always said it's actually a strength for college basketball that it has such a long off season. Cause you get that hungry for it. And then when it arrives, at least for the people that really care about the sport, you know, it's so welcome with open arms by the time it comes back. Well, man, you, you've always been one of my boys and, and part of it is because you love music, which we'll get, a, get to about as I do. But I think I want to start out with this. You and Gary Parrish, I think have done a great public service with your candid coaches series. And this is this year. It's of particular interest to me. And, and this is done right. You, you, you talk to a hundred coaches. You don't just talk to power conference coaches. You, you know, I think I read where it was 12 leagues were represented assistants oh, no, yeah. as well as head coaches. Yeah, like two, oh, two dozen leagues, Chris. Two, like two dozen leagues. Oh, okay, it, yeah, yeah. It's it's even it's not better. all thirty-two, but it's it's close to it. Yeah, even better. So, you know, they're promised anonymity, which allows them to speak freely. And I trust you guys. Uh, if you if you know, if you want to use uh, some people question anonymous sources, <laughs> I trust you guys. So when you talk to a hundred coaches. And the question is, should the NCAA tournament stay as is or change to a 16-team all-at-large format? 97% of those uh, you talk to say, no, stay as is. Son, that is a public service that you've done. Uh, I hope everybody reads it, including Greg Sankey, who I have great admiration for. But uh, I don't think we need to mess with it. Uh, talk about some of the more compelling uh, arguments in, in favor of not messing with it that you ran across. Sure. Um, so real, I'll, I'll try not to be too long winded, but I do want to explain this one because I, I picked it with intention. Um, and that's because I was told a few months back that, listen, Greg Sankey's gotten on a couple of these calls, one with the D one council, and he's basically been, you know, just talking aloud about, 
you know, as we go through this, like, do we need to look at the NCAA tournament and consider making some changes to it? Not definitely making changes, just consider it. And Sankey was coming from that viewpoint as an SEC commissioner. Obviously, he co-chairs the Transformation Committee, which is a vitally important committee because it's going to literally redefine what it means and how you qualify as being a Division One institution, regardless of what kind of sport you are looking to do with football, men's basketball, field hockey, women's volleyball, whatever. And so I, you know, a couple people in the college sports space found me to kind of give me the heads up on this and. Uh, Truthfully, I was going to try and keep it under wraps until we did this poll question, but credit to Jeff Goodman. He wound up reporting this uh, in he I think he did it on his podcast. He just said, oh, by the way, I'm hearing Greg Sankey might want to get rid of uh, at large bids. I'm like, yep, I figured it would get out because that kind of thing is such a volatile idea that the idea that Sankey could bring it up even informally. On a, on a Zoom call with 20 other sports leaders to think that it wouldn't get out uh, was not realistic. In fact, I even posit in my story, uh, Sankey might've done that knowing it would get out as almost like a trial balloon there. Um, so I knew going in that asking, should we get, do all at larges or should we keep the same format? I knew that the format would win. Uh, in my heart of hearts, I thought it would win maybe 80 to 20, which would still be a definitive victory. 97 to three is an insane wow. uh, return. As I wrote, <laughs> you will not, I'm not, I'm like, it's, it's almost like a, a, a funny throwaway line, but I'm serious. You will not find another issue that gets 97% agreement in the coaching community. You will not find another one other than should we play college basketball? That's the only <laughs> other one. If you pulled them on anything, well, right? you said something like about my, my salary, you know, like is my yes. salary good enough? Yeah. There are coaches. I know that are like, I don't need, no one's going to ever say no to more money. But if you ask the coach, the coaches, the questions, are you paid enough money? Fewer than 97% would say yes or no. You know, it would not, it would not come back the yeah. same. So, um, now it's, we did, yeah, we pulled a hundred coaches. Um, I did hear from two coaches after this went up. That was like, this shows why the coaching never trust coaches. We're all idiots. Of course we should switch up. And so there were a couple after it came out who I did not originally poll that did say, yes, if you truly pulled every single head coach and assistant throughout D one, I bet you it wouldn't be 97%, but it would almost certainly be above 90% there. And I want to be specific about one more thing here. If you want to go deeper into this, I'm happy to do it. Sure. The question did not ask. We did not ask, should the tournament expand? Because when I got my tip on this, it wasn't, hey, Sankey's talking about getting rid of automatic bids and thinking about expanding the tournament. It was just, he's considering maybe just open to the exploratory idea of, should we maybe rethink how we hand out these automatic bids? Should the ACC get one just as much as the MEAC gets one, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it obviously even though nothing has been proposed, I want to emphasize that. And again, I think that's because Sankey thought maybe it would leak out and he wants to get a, a feel on return. Um, I do think that if anything is done with the tournament in terms of tweaking the automatic bids, which I do not believe should happen, but if anything is done with that, I think that would come with an expansion effort if that's 72 or eight, I, it shouldn't expand period. I'm just as much against that as I am to getting rid of the auto bids. But I think that's also out there because he's looking, he's looking on behalf of the sec and, and all this stuff. And apparently it ties into the college baseball tournament, which you guys are way more familiar with than I am, but I, I get it. The sec apparently, you know, 
uh, maybe it was Arkansas a year ago, like didn't get in and it was one of the best teams. And then this year, Mississippi state was like the last yep. team in and it wins the college world series. The so Sankey's coming at it from the standpoint of, well, if we have teams that are capable of making a final four or literally winning a championship in this one sport, like, should we not consider that the two, three, four teams we're just leaving out might also have the capability. Yeah. And so th- there's a lot of factors that go into this, but the tournament is so, and I know I'm, I know I'm, being long on this, but it's with intention here because it's uh, it's obviously something I care a ton about, and I know you guys do as well, and really probably anyone listening to this podcast does. The tournament is is near perfect. 64 would be perfect. Whatever. We have 68. I'll take the first four. It's fine. It's a couple other games. It is, it is about as perfect of a sporting event as the United States of America has, and we need, to not, we need to not have this impulse to say, Maybe we can make 7% more money by adding more inventory or changing this and changing that. Let's just let it be. You know, the tournament, we have reached a point, 68 teams and a 363-team sport. It still is challenging to get into. I know casual sports fans or fly-by sports writers might be like, everyone gets in. That's lazy and it's inaccurate. It's still a challenging field and gives us the reward of having a ton of teams in a bracket. We don't need any more. Every conference should have entrance into it so that you can get a St. Peter's. You can get, you know, Loyola needed the auto bid to make the final four onward and on where we go. I could ramble about this for an hour, but that's basically the gist behind the question and my thoughts on it. Now you mentioned 363 teams. Uh, the latest one I saw in your candid coaches series is talked about the number of teams in division one basketball and more than half the coaches said to keep it like it is more than 40% were in favor, of at least some cuts how do you feel like maybe that might go hand in hand with how the tournament looks in the future? It does go hand in hand. So thank you for bringing that up because um, these questions were both asked because they are connecting issues. What I think could happen could, I'm not saying will, I don't have all the details on this. I don't even think the transformation committee and Greg Sankey have a hold on this yet. I think this is going to be one of the longest things it takes to uh, determine Will Division One, as we know, and let's just stick with basketball, will Division One basketball remain as is? Now, again, 53% said of the coaches said keep it as is, but I, but that's almost half the coaches we polled said Division One's too big. I would agree with that. Now, you can have two opinions that seem convergent, but they actually make sense. To me, I think about 290 to 300 teams is fine in Division One. I think you 300 to 363, those are quad four games. Like they are, they are not helping the product. They are, they are bringing it down. My colleague, Gary Paris thinks like 200 is the ideal number. I think that's actually a little too small, but whatever. Uh, The point is the transformation committee is going to determine. All right. If you are a division one basketball institution, what does that mean? What should it mean? Should it mean we stay at 363? Does it mean you have to have a certain amount of financial investment? What, thresholds do you need to clear will there always still be division one with 363 teams in it but and this is the workaround here okay this is how this topic connects to what we just talked about with the tournament and will it get changed will we get to a point where you qualify for the ncaa tournament if you're division one let's just call i i don't know what these things will be called let's just say there's tier one tier two tier three yeah and if you're if you're tier one uh, you can qualify with an automatic or an at-large. If you're tier two, you can only qualify via an automatic bid. And then if you're tier three, you just don't qualify for the tournament. Now, maybe you can get there with a certain amount of winning or if you cross a certain threshold for investment into your program. And within that change, if it does, if it even happens, 
that, in my opinion, is how you get from 32 automatic bids to maybe just maybe we maybe that gets whittled down to 26 automatic bids because, well, we've redefined what it means to be division one. We've redefined what it means to be good enough to qualify as an AQ. And if you're not meeting that threshold, maybe you can get back there. Eventually, you'll still be able to play a 31 game division one schedule. Your games and your results will count toward the net. I assume they have to. Otherwise, you're really blowing up the whole selection and resume process in general. But if you're not meeting that threshold, then you're going to be designated tier three and you can qualify for the NIT and you can qualify for the CBI, but you're not going to qualify for the NCAA tournament. I'm not saying this will happen. I'm saying I very much can see a scenario where in an effort to streamline what it means to be division one, trim some of the fat that becomes a consequence of that decision. Or as I wrote on Tuesday, it's a, workaround disguised as a policy change. And maybe that's how we just lose three or four or six mid slash low major teams in the tournament. I would not be in favor of that, but at the same time, I am in favor of, of, of shaving off some of division one. I just think it's too big. I've maintained this opinion for a long time. I don't know how we get there. If promotion and relegation a la European soccer was a thing, I think that would be great for college <laughs> basketball. I don't think college yeah. leaders are bold enough. I don't think they're bold enough to go there. And it's not an easy thing with television contracts and how conferences make money. And the last thing on this, and I touched on all this in my writing is if you're going to do that, if you're going to tear out division one, how do you do it with conferences like the WCC Gonzaga is obviously tier one Pacific is not. So how do you do that within yeah. conference play? How do these things align? You can't simply go to one league. And I also wrote like the CAA, the colonial, like it's been the 21st best league and it's been the 12th best league. That's a massive gap. All in the span of just a couple of years. In the span of a couple of yeah. years. Mm -hmm. So this is a very complex issue. Maybe we ultimately look up in a few months, guys, or a year and the transformation committee has decided we can't really change what it means to be a D1 basketball institution the way we want to. And this is just, it just stays as is. But I know there is real motivation to further create lines of delineation between haves and have nots from a financial standpoint. And that could have downstream effects on how college basketball's overall, you know, university school team population is comprised. Well, I can tell you, Matt, having recently finished editing Blue Ribbon. You're right in that 363 is too much. There are some schools that are just barely holding on. I'm not going to name names, but Chicago State is one of them. Right. Uh, limited enrollment, uh, constant coaching turnover, trying to make it as an independent because even the WAC didn't want them. So, yeah, there are schools like that that I think you could pare it down a little bit. But I'm – I'm totally on board with you, with you on everything you said. And again, kudos to you and Gary, because I think this is what you did here with this specific question. I mean, that's going to be on Greg Sankey's desk. That's going to be on everybody's who's on this committee's desk. Uh, and, and they need to heed it because I think messing with success would, I, I, I discussed it with Jay Billis once and, and I greatly respect him, and he's a friend and a friend of the show. He said, "Come on now, Chris. If, if there was a, if there was a, a, a all power conference NCAA tournament, you know you'd watch it." And I said, "Well, yeah, you're right. I would watch it, but you know, I went to two mid majors, uh, both of whom 
have kicked a little butt in the NCAAs uh, from time to time. And I think that would take the magic away from it. As you mentioned, St. Peter's, who saw that coming? If, mm -hmm. if anybody uh, in the world claims that they picked uh, <laughs> them to go that far in their bracket, they are lying through their teeth. So this was a great thing that you guys did. Uh, pass my uh, uh, appreciation on to Gary, too, if you don't mind. I, I will, but also real. I'll add to that. It's not that a tournament that only had, and again, only power conference teams. How do you even like Gonzaga clearly qualifies for that. So if the, if you know, the mountain West is in the WCC or they're still involved, the a 10 still involved, where do you cut it off? Do you say, uh, I guess the SoCon, you don't get to go. It's not that we wouldn't watch yeah. it. Of course, it's it's a bracket with a bunch of teams, basketball in March. People are going to watch it. But there would be an element taken away from that tournament that would have negative impacts. I think that's I think that's undeniable. And I think the backlash would be about as noisy as anything that you could get. You will not find many. You will find people that will be like, all right, I don't like it, but I'll still watch it. You will not find many people that would be voluntarily in favor of this idea. And that should really be the compass for the transformation committee. Uh, Sankey, Julie Cromer, who's the co-chair, she's the AD at, at Ohio representing uh, the mid-majors on that. And there are plenty of uh, representatives on that 21 persons transformation committee that don't come from power conferences. But if you simply just take a step back, say it out loud, if we do this, how many people are actually going to endorse and be in favor of the idea? Uh, there's not going to be that many. And the ones that are, are the ones that stand to make money from it. You know, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't impact uh, you or I, we don't, you know, we don't make more money. We're not in, and sometimes you should not, I know this is going to sound just brutally naive. I get all that, but sometimes you shouldn't just be making decisions crassly because it might be able to make you 5% or 10% more in profit margin. The, the, the NCAA tournament, uh, it, when the deal comes up again in a decade, because it goes till 2032, like the next deal is going to be absolutely mammoth. And it is my opinion, I'm not a television executive. It is my opinion that if you went to TV networks and said, you can have a 68 team tournament with every single league auto bids, you know, or you are going to go to a market with a 68 team tournament that is only the eight biggest conferences. Uh, I believe the former, the way it is, would actually be worth more than the latter personally. Well, here's a quote from one of your coaches. You need the auto bids and upsets. I think you lose the casual fan if it's all the big boys only, along with the spirit of the tournament. And those words, spirit of the tournament, are to me, is what it's is what we're talking about. It is one last one last comment for me on this. By the way, another reason. Now, ninety-seven percent. That's head. That's the the ones who said no. One power conference coach. Two mid-majors actually said no. Two mid-major head coaches, one wow. in the Midwest and one out east, said no. Said go all at largest. Those are two mid-majors. Wow. Another coach who technically landed in the 97% said, I'd get rid of auto bids, get it down to the top 16 auto bids from the metrics of the conferences that rate best, and I'd go that. But that's that's that was almost like half and half, so I didn't accept that. He was also he was a uh, power conference head coach that's out west. But the reason why so many head coaches and assistants and power conferences voted for this is they have little desire as a one, two, or three seed to play a 14, 15, or 16 from a power conference. Those players, generally speaking, uh, played grassroots basketball with players they might be playing against. They are they are talented. They might have they might have a, a long shot NBA player or someone who's going to play 12 years overseas and be, be really damn good. You know, Duke doesn't really want to have to go and face 
let's say Arizona State's good, but they're not, but they're like a 15 seed. Duke does not want to play Arizona State as a 15 seed in the first round. No desire. You can get fired that much more easily. Yes, upsets happen with small schools, but they don't happen a ton. And so coaches are more comfortable with the idea of playing a one big team, one big uh, a team from a, from a conference in the first round. And that was another motivating factor in this. Let me be clear about that. And I get it. You don't want to have to play someone's like, I'd rather see Duke versus Stanford than Duke versus Bryant. Duke, Duke does not want to play Stanford in the first round of the tournament. They want to play Bryant. No. So that was another reason why coaches were motivated to vote the way they did. Our guest is Matt Norlander from CBS Sports. Uh, Matt, before we let you go, you're known, of course, for your love of music. And um, you, of course, got a lot of attention with your Guster sticker on your computer at the Final Four. I liked your uh, comprehensive ranking of Dave Matthews songs. I thought that was terrific and no telling how long it took you to do all that. But I, I do have a question about Dave Matthews' band. I've yes. seen him 11 times, but I still feel like sort of a visitor. Now, my friend Kyle Schwartz, who works at the OVC, he's seen him like 51 times. And he's still a lightweight. I'm up wow. to 98. Yeah, I'm up okay. to 98. Right, right. So. You know, and my wife and, and, and her best friend have seen him probably 20 times or so. But I, I've seen him 11 times, and I still feel like sort of an outsider. What, what's sort of the crossover point where you feel like you're, you're part of the family? Uh, you're pretty You're pretty good. When was your first DMB show? Uh, about 13, 14 years ago, I, I think. Uh, okay. So you came late. So do you know if you saw him before Leroy Moore died? Uh, the sax I, I player? Think I, I think no I did. Yeah. Um, Okay, I saw him in 09. That was the first time I saw him. So I, I guess that's... No, so yeah, he died in... He's died in... So yeah, you got to uh, DMB 3.0, as we call them there. Um, <laughs> you've never... You, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you're a little bit of a newcomer. But you know, you've, that's a pretty good ratio since... Uh, since then, but no, it, it, the, the fam community is actually uh, a pretty great one with DMB. It's actually evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, there still is the element, uh, which is kind of wild to me, but there is, there still is an element. Like if you are, uh, you know, between the ages of 15 and 22 and, uh, you know, you go to a liberal arts school, of course, did you go to the DMB show this summer? Like there still is that, but yeah. the, the fan base has appropriately aged, and I mean, I got into them when I was I was in high school. Um, but you know, you'll see plenty of people in their forties, fifties, and sixties at DMB shows now. Just as you will see eighteen and nineteen year olds, it still is a thing to do. It's almost a, a scene to be at. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as much of a, as a disaster as it was circa you know ninety eight to say twenty twelve. It's 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 come along, and um, you know, it's it's a. I actually think DMB's fan base gets a little bit of a bad rap. Some of it maybe has been earned, like you know, your average DMB fan. I get that, but. Uh, but uh, guys like yourself, they're more and more prominent at uh, at DMB shows, which is which is great. And uh, yeah, the ranking of the songs I did that. We, that's now more than two years old. That was uh, COVID hit. We never had a tournament, and uh, I I needed a bracket, so I made a bracket of like the sixty eight <laughs> best DMB songs. But then I was like, I can't be satisfied with just a bracket. I need to literally rank every single one of these this band songs that's ever. Awesome. So I, I did that and. Uh, Number forty-one, I decided was uh, was the best song. I, I think I would agree with you on that. I think forty-one is is the best. It's yeah, it's it blends particularly if you listen to the the album. Now, DMB is one of those bands. Well, there are actually some album cuts that I prefer to any live cut of some songs, but most songs you're gonna find at least a handful of versions that are just gonna be more rewarding on playback than uh, than the mm-hmm. album version. But forty-one's album cut. Uh, while it would not be my go-to version, and I don't think it would be in my top five versions, it would be certainly in my top ten because of the way that Steve Lillywhite, the producer, captured uh, the band sound on that cut and kind of mixing everything from sax to flute to violin, jam se- section. The song's composition isn't uh, isn't traditional. The chord structure isn't traditional. Um, so yeah, th- that uh, 
that you know, I'm I'm definitely a, a DMB hardcore and plan on seeing them again. Uh, I guess for the 99th time, uh, that would be this. Uh, they're playing the Garden in November. Incredible. It's after the season starts, so I got to figure out if I can go if, if the wife will uh, let me off the leash, so I can go two nights, <laughs> or if I'm just going to go uh, one. Those are the closing but, but, dates. Of but if you go two nights, you can get to 100, right? That's right. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, Although I'm such a stickler on this stuff, it's technically 100 Dave Matthews adjacent. It is 100 Dave Matthews yeah. adjacent shows because like five or six of those are Dave and Tim. So yes, it will yeah, not. I've seen, I've seen one of those. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, now that and that they're, they're actually, I'm, I live in Connecticut. They're playing. Uh, Dave and Tim are playing in uh, in two weeks up here at a, at a festival up here in Connecticut. So I have to decide if I'm going to that as well. So anyway, that's uh, that's my Dave Matthews input right there. So one more music question before we let you go. Uh, yeah. You, you said your young sons are already Beatles fans. My I I, I applaud that. Uh, I my son and daughter and two grandsons are Beatles fans. And my gateway drug to introducing them to the Beatles was yellow submarine. Mm-hmm, so same. how did you get your boys to dig the Beatles? Okay. A couple things. One, yes. Yellow submarine Two, I know this is just for audio. So people can't see it, but Dorch has a McCartney poster behind him. I'm going to say that 2012. What is that? What is that poster? Uh, uh, that was 210. 2010. 2010. Yeah. Okay. That's no good. wait, wait. That was that was fifteen in Nashville. Okay, it's I yeah, saw McCartney yeah. for the first and only time in seventeen in Brooklyn. Um, but so yeah, I have a, a son who's about to turn seven. If McCartney plays around here again, I think I'm going to take him. So uh, the reason why this even happened, and listen, you uh, the Beatles are a great band to introduce your children to because there's just so much there for them. Um, but I have Sirius XM to thank for this because there is a dedicated Beatles channel mm-hmm. and yeah. like they genuine, I did not for, I, I did not, even though I'm a music fanatic um, and like I, I'd play some like, you know, I'm rocking my Guster shirt here. Yes. Like Guster's also another band. That's like, it's, they're very easy to get your children into because they're really good music, but a lot of their songs have, um, have an approach to them that uh, you know, just it, they can they're easy on the ear for for children so um with the beatles you know my wife and i both love them uh i have all the records we play them on the on the on the turntable here at home but when we're in the car and you know the beatles channel is one of our you know presets there uh you know there's just a lot of songs like i I have a son who just turned four and he's literally yesterday he went somewhere with my wife in the morning and um he was singing. Now he doesn't know all the words, but he's singing the melody to "Ticket to Ride." <laughs> I'm like, this isn't like this is just so so. <laughs> this is so cool. Um, and so, and like my older son, uh, he got from Santa last year. Uh, the only Beatles LP we actually didn't have in the house was was "Let It Be," so that is his, and he got that. And so, like he has a, he has a he has already developed uh, an emotional attachment to that record because it is his. He got it for um, Christmas, and so whenever like "Let It Be" for him. And the cover art comes up on Sirius XM, no matter the song, uh, he's going to want to listen to it. And so that was, but when my older one was like two and a half, three, Yellow Submarine was, that was the gateway. There's no doubt about that. And yeah. now, um, like my older son's favorite record, it's, it's let it be because it's his, but if it wasn't that, um, I, 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 w- I would have to think it's Magical Mystery Tour because there's a lot of songs on that album as mm-hmm. well. That uh, that are fun for a seven year old boy to sing. So anyway, that's uh, uh, your favorite Beatles song. Before we let you go, good stuff. Uh, that's Penny it, Lane. 
Penny Lane is great. Uh, the the construction of that song is is fascinating in terms of chord changes. Um, I would say I've thought about this before. Uh, let me just trying to think. My favorite Beatles song overall. It's hard. I know, but um, but I want to give you like what I. Th- I, I I think my favorite Beatles song is Gotta Get You Into My Life. I think that's my favorite Beatles song. But my favorite Beatles oh, that's album. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's probably the my horns. favorite one. A- Abbey Road's probably my favorite album. Uh, but because that's because the suite is insane. When you think about the fact that even though Let It Be came out last, they recorded Abbey Road last. And yep. Side 2 is basically for the most part just one long music suite and that's how they ended it as a band it's just it's i mean it's just in, insane and like uh i want you would be in my top five without a doubt um the end like doesn't like it counts but it doesn't it's, it's a song but it's not like a song like that would be in like my top 10 but but got to get you into my life i think if you made me pick one off of revolver i think that would be it uh but um but yeah, Penny Lane would be top 10 for me, without a doubt. Um, I mean, I could just, uh, Magical Mr. Tour is awesome. <laughs> We got to start a music podcast, brother. Okay. And Hello, good, Hello Goodbye would be in my top 10 as, uh, top 10 as well. So Me uh, too. I, I yes. see you, you trend McCartney. I do trend McCartney. I'm more McCartney than John, for sure. I'm more McCartney <laughs> than too. John. And a buddy I play music with, he's more John than, than Paul. So, yeah. I think the end would be the one for me. I, I like the whole golden slumbers. Uh, just that, that whole setup there is, is cool. And all, all three of the Beatles playing lead guitar and you try yes. to pick out which one is which. Yes. That's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, when we find ourselves in times of trouble, we call Matt Norlander uh, with CBS sports. Thanks so much for the time. <laughs> uh, we'll, we hope to catch up with you again down the road. We'll do this again. Thank you, fellas. Keep Appreciate doing it. the good work, brother. We'll do. Thank you. Well, that was Matt Norlander, senior writer, analyst, and podcaster for CBS Sports. And the part we didn't talk about is how Chris got an impromptu guitar lesson before we went on the air with the interview. So, <laughs> so good stuff. You can talk. Yeah, he was teaching me America's and, horse with no name. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I uh, I started picking up guitar during the lockdown, you know, like just trying to make the most of being sitting around at home and, and uh I don't know. Maybe one of these days I'll I'll play a song on the podcast. That was after your ill-fated attempt at learning the drums. Whatever happened with that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think you correctly surmised that, that it's like, why are you doing this? You're you're too old to go out on the road. <laughs> there is absolutely no future in this. What really convinced me was. Like, well, how am I going to carry that drum kit around in a Honda CRV? Yeah, that, that can be a tough happen. one, too. You might have to go electronic yeah. there. Uh, Chris, as yeah. we wrap up our podcast, uh, neat story involving Steph Curry, who obviously is one of the all-time greats. You look at his career, it's just remarkable. But uh, some neat stuff involving him at Davidson recently. Yeah, I, I saw a great tweet where somebody said, uh, Steph hits another three. He graduates from Davidson. And automatically that allows him to get into their school's Hall of Fame and get his number retired. They were going to they were not going to do the latter two until he did the former, uh, which is graduate. He worked on it for years, had some help from professors at Davidson and even Stanford and got it done. Uh, I recommend anybody. I think it's free. I'm not sure. But Rolling Stone 
did a cover story on Steph and it's very thorough. And whether you're a Steph fan or not, I don't see how you can read that and not appreciate him. Uh, he gives a lot of money uh, of his money away and, and, and he works for charities of all kinds. And he's just a good, solid dude. I feel so fortunate that I was covering uh, some of the Southern conference when he was in it. Mm-hmm. And I got to see him about eight or nine times live at Davidson. And uh, I don't think anybody could have forecast how great he's become, but he's a testament to hard work and having that chip on your shoulder, not even his father's Del Curry, alma mater, Virginia tech offered him a D one scholarship. He took Davidson and then he nearly got him to the final four. So uh, he's a transformative player once in a generation and a lot of people rightfully so think he's the best shooter ever. So happy to see him uh, get the trifecta there at Davidson. Well-deserved. I think he's the greatest shooter ever. And that's not any sort of recency bias because I've seen a lot of basketball over the years. And uh, there, oh, aren't, there aren't many players that you can say changed basketball, but he changed basketball and, and just won another NBA championship with the Golden State Warriors. So uh, congrats yeah. to Steph and, and his family and uh, just a, a great representative of the game. Chris, always a lot of fun uh, for folks who want to purchase the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook, the 42nd edition. Uh, give the info real quick. BlueRibbonYearbook.com. Uh, the the uh, iPad digital version is ready for download right now, and the book will be ready next month. Chris, always a lot of fun, man. We'll do it again next time. Thanks, buddy. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram, and that is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.